You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, good morning, saints. The power of the gospel is not in how well equipment work or uh, how undistracted we seek to be. Oftentimes, equipment doesn't work and we end up distracted. And so it's good that we approach God's word knowing that it has the power because of Christ for us. So as you make your way to Philippians, you can uh, get, get prepared as we read the, the scripture text. And I'm going to pray for us this morning as we are in great need uh, to have our ears opened, to have eyes that see and minds that understand and affections that uh, lift toward the Lord. So pray with me. Our great Father in heaven, you are so good in all your ways toward us. But you are high and lifted up, holy, and there is none like you. But we, O oh Lord, because of Christ, approach the throne of grace boldly in our time of need. Father, we ask for your mercy and your grace as we look to your word, how needy we are to be, to come into uh, contact with Christ for us. Not just thinking about what he did for us, not just thinking about how good you are, but living in it. It is our reality. And by your spirit, may your word bring us into what is true. Lord, we, we yearn for this, O oh God. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've opened up to Philippians and you are in chapter 1, we're going to read together verses 12 through 18, or at least that first part of, of 18, that first sentence. And this is the perfect word of God, breathed out by him, his testimony to us. The word says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. We thank God for his word this morning and every morning. How does a gospel-centered gospel -centered life, resting in Christ and surrendering our life, connect to suffering and security? How does a gospel-centered life, 
resting in Christ and surrendering our lives connect to suffering and security. Well, as believers, the key to living a gospel-centered life is embracing the reality of resting in Christ. And it is through that surrender that we can confidently navigate suffering in this life, knowing that we are secure in him. So I asked a very long question and gave a very long answer for a couple sentences. But as believers, the key to living a gospel-centered life is embracing the reality of resting in Christ. And it is in that surrendering of our lives to Christ, resting in him, that we confidently navigate suffering in this life, knowing that we are secure in him. As a reminder, the church in Philippi, they're very discouraged. There's difficult outward circumstances that is consuming their attention. Paul's trying to encourage them, but he's writing from jail. Uh, the faithful leader that they've sent to encourage Paul, but also have some, some encouragement sent back from Paul, Epaphroditus, he almost dies twice in this whole process of going to visit Paul. The church is experiencing disunity and some rivalry within it. And some have come teaching confidence in the flesh, the Judaizers, instead of the cross of Christ. And then there's other enemies seeking opposition in the church. And Paul is writing, God ultimately is seeking to encourage the church by putting their attention back on the power and the joy of the gospel and their fellowship with God and with each other in it. In this letter to the Philippians, God encourages us to run the Christian life with consistency and endurance because of the power and the joy of the gospel. And as we talked about last week in this letter, we learn God's heart toward us and his work in us, which manifests the reality that for us living is Christ. To simplify that, the love of God enables us to love well and to suffer well. So this, this encouragement to live the Christian life with consistency and endurance, it is grounded and founded upon the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. And living in that, we learn that living is Christ. And so for today, we find that the power of the gospel allows us to embrace the joy that comes from knowing that God is consistently in control and working through every circumstance in our life. The power of the gospel, as we learn today, allows us to embrace the joy that comes from knowing that God is consistently in control and working through every circumstance in life. And there are two reasons why the power of the gospel enables us to find joy in knowing that God is in control. That's what we'll look at today in this section. And those two reasons are that God's strength is shown in weakness. That's the first reason. And that's in verses 12 through 14. And the second reason is that the power of Christ goes beyond our circumstances. It transcends our circumstances. So to be very clear, there are two reasons why the power of the gospel enables us to find joy in knowing that God is in control. Reason one, we'll look at now that God's strength is shown in weakness. Looking at verses 12 through 14, here's what uh, we find. It reveals to us that God's strength is demonstrated through weakness. As you look at verse 12, Paul, obviously writing from jail, 
is remarkably very joyful. And he's like this, I know that you're discouraged, but I want you to know. I need you to understand. If there's one thing you need to get, it's this about my suffering. It is that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So Paul is very joyful because he's actually fixed on the purposes of God rather than the current look of the circumstances. These circumstances look very pitiful if we're going to have the gospel go forth. I'm in prison in Rome. I did, Paul wanted to go to Rome, visit the saints, and he goes to Rome, but he's in chains. So we heard from uh, Romans 14 and 15. So despite the uh, adversity, uh, or excuse me, we like to think, well, it's despite the adversity, God accomplishes his purposes. But really what Paul is actually telling us here is that the adversity has actually turned out to advance the gospel. Not despite the adversity or in spite of the diversity, but that's actually the adversity, excuse me, that God is using to advance his gospel. And verse 13 shows us how that the whole imperial guard. Now, you do a lot of Bible dictionaries and you're trying to figure out the Roman guard and there's a, there's a couple mixed opinions, but here's where it's, it is, there's a lot of um, consistency. There's several thousand men in this imperial guard leading all the way up to those who would serve in Caesar's household. And the way this worked and where Paul was is that guards would just rotate chaining themselves to Paul in this home that he's ridding uh, that he's renting to be in jail. So it's house arrest uh, chained to a guard. Now you imagine being a guard in Caesar's army going to chain yourself to Paul who's unusually very joyful about where he is in, in this time of life. And what's interesting, not that, that we need to know this for the purpose of understanding this text, But the language in verse 13, for Christ, Paul actually uses his famous words, in Christ. His imprisonment has been known in Christ. So they're like, yeah, Paul's in prison in Christ, is what is getting through the guards. And as they chain themselves day after day, hour after hour, I don't know what the shift was, uh, Paul is giving them the gospel. And that's what we have to understand even about verse 14 when we see, or excuse me, uh, verse 12, when it says it has served to advance the gospel. Now, it's not just that he's a Christian and he's chained, and just by knowing that, the gospel is advanced. People might know of Christians are dying, but the advancement of the gospel is that Paul is having the opportunity to proclaim the message of Jesus to Roman guards, all making its way all the way up to Caesar's household. In verse 4, I mean chapter 4 of Philippians, Paul even says, greet the saints and greet the ones that are of Caesar's household. So God has used imprisonment to save folks in Caesar's household. How? Not just through knowing that he's in chains and he's really joyful about it, It's through the proclamation of Jesus Christ being spoken and it's going in power. Because being in prison for Christ doesn't preach good news. It evidences that there is good news. But where is the power, as we know, is in the preaching of Jesus. And in this whole process, verse 14 says that even the brothers in Rome, I'm assuming that we're talking about the brothers in Rome, 
uh, they have become very confident in the Lord by what God is doing through Paul's imprisonment. And they have become bold to speak the word. Why? Is it just because, well, he's really joyful in a, in a really bad situation? I can too. That's not the point here. Yes, that, that it, it encourages us to watch the saints suffer well in the Lord. It does encourage us. But they have become bold to do what? Speak the word. The word of what? The word of Jesus Christ. Uh, so it's very important to see how God is using this adversity to have Christ proclaim in unreached places Caesar's household for crying out loud. And very hard people. And it's emboldening the saints to speak the word of Christ because it has power. Why does it have power? Because the word that's preached is Christ himself. It is his person, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, coming to keep the law for us. As his work, his person is preached, it goes forth and it saves sinners. It saves those people who are separated from God in their weakness and in their foolishness. They're saved through the foolishness of preaching. This is how the gospel advances today, saints. Imagine being chained to Paul, but imagine sitting in the pulpit where you need to hear of Christ, or sitting in a church today where the gospel advances, letting us know, like we always need to know, that sin has separated us from God. It's ruined all of our relationships. It's ru- ruined our relationship to the Lord, our relationship to each other, and even our relationship with ourselves. It has led to all kinds of suffering in this life and ultimately death. And then in steps the Messiah. Fully God, fully man, having never sinned. Not just to be an example of what God is like, but to be your perfect righteousness. In every way that we have failed to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, God came in flesh to do it for us. To be our righteousness. And then he took the weight of sin. He bore the punishment. So we sit here, and then Paul is in chains declaring forgiveness to those who've been setting Christians on fire for years. To be forgiven and to be reconciled to God by preaching Jesus Christ for sinners. And so as we face trials and tribulations, we take comfort in knowing that Jesus is intimately familiar with our pain. And he is always with us, offering comfort and hope and peace. See, this is a message that can't be chained. A normal message can be chained by circumstances. If you preach to me health, wealth, and prosperity, if you preach to me that life is going to go swell, that I won't be sick, that my faith is going to make a happy life, that message is quickly and easily chained by the suffering and the consequences of sin in this life. But the gospel cannot be changed. The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be bound in the power of the gospel in our lives, though, is often evidenced through suffering. 
It's not a message that says we won't suffer. It's often a message that says that I will show you the power through suffering. And just consider that. Consider how the logic of God is just so different from ours. We often wait for the perfect circumstances, but God doesn't. It's very counterintuitive to us that God chooses the lowly and the unexpected to advance the beautiful and the glorious. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You see, if we had the chance, we probably wouldn't do it this way. But the Lord delights to show his glory and his wisdom through our weakness. So he put Paul in chains to get the gospel to Caesar's household. And our weakness becomes apparent also. Our weakness becomes apparent when we experience pain and distress. And that is just interestingly enough the way the Lord likes to show his strength. Some of you might have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor and he led several efforts to condemn, resist, and even overthrow Hitler. And he rose to leadership in these movements. He helped rescue Jews from Nazi Germany, but he was found out and thrown into prison. Now, during his imprisonment, he ministered to the prisoners, and he wrote lots of letters to his family and to his friends. And here's some content of some of those letters that he wrote. God lets himself be pushed out of the world and onto the cross. He's weak and powerless in the world. And that is precisely the way, the only way in which he is with us and helps us. The Bible makes quite clear that Christ helps us, not under his omnipotence, taking it all away, but by his weakness and suffering. The Bible directs man to God's powerlessness and suffering. Only the suffering God can help. A lot of interesting phrases that make our antennas. Powerlessness of God. How is the most powerful powerless? The Lord Jesus emptied himself of all glory, humbling himself even to the point of death. It's this paradoxical nature of how God shows power in giving it all up on the cross. And he crushes Satan's head. He destroys the kingdom of darkness and death is defeated. Sinners are forgiven and God's kingdom is ushered in. Bonhoeffer's writings, the reason I brought them up is because they remind us of how our Savior can fully sympathize with us in our sufferings while still being sovereign over it all. He fully sympathizes with us, and he's in it with us, and yet he's sovereign over it all. And both bring us comfort and joy in our suffering. So why do I kind of bring all of this down to suffering? It's because I could be wrong here. I don't know that any of us have been imprisoned for preaching Christ. That's not necessarily our set of struggles as Christians in North Carolina. It is struggles for Christians and our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. There's other 
versions of persecution within maybe your workplace and, and other things. But I think most pointedly, we experience persecution in the version of, in the, the form of spiritual warfare in this life, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the angels and rulers and principalities. It's against the kingdom of darkness, but it's also against every other form of suffering that we experience in this life, whether it's suffering from even the consequences of our own sins. Think about how the consequences of when we sin, and it has this negative effect on us emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Imagine, you know, you make a bad decision that leads to family drama. Or, for example, failing an important project at work. Spending beyond your budget, and it's called strain in your relationships. You have financial stress, and it results in job loss or this damaged reputation. And you're just sort of embarrassed. And Satan attacks, you worthless clown. You think God can use somebody like this? You think that you are an example of what God's love is to the world when you're just kind of in the results of your sin? Shamed, suffering from that. Or how about just the sickness or that we experience in this life? Our bodies fall apart. Terminal illnesses, things that we didn't ask for. Depression, anxiety, where our mood is so affected, our appetites are messed up, our sleep patterns are messed up, and we just have this constant feeling of sadness and hopelessness that we can't get it to go away. Thoughts of self-harm or the anxiety part of this where we are just this worry and nervousness that even causes physical sensations that we wish didn't happen. And it affects our thoughts and our concentration And then we think, Lord's got to just be embarrassed by this. I'm ashamed of me. I wish this wasn't happened to me. How do we, like Paul, fix our hearts on the purposes of God, even in those types of sufferings? This is how. In all our troubles in life, it's knowing this. God is always wise, always righteous, and he's always gracious to his children. See our confession 5.5. See the consequences of sin. We don't want to sin. Sometimes we do want to sin and we hate that we do want to sin. We want to do good and we end up doing bad and then we suffer the consequences. Well, we can look at that even as God's chastisement to us. As we've experienced the consequences of our poor choices, it's the correction of God in love for our prophet to see that this is a terrible thing. Spending, I'm giving very practical examples. Yeah, spending over the budget that caused family friction or not thinking ahead about the choices that we make as a family and how that affects our lives and different things like how I speak to my wife or my friends, things like this when we're in, our, in these moments and we sin and we don't want to and we experience the consequences. It is the love of a father for our prophet letting us experience those consequences. But it's also a humbling It's humbling us to see that our sins are forgiven, yet they remain in us in a way that, just in powerful ways. Yes, our sins are forgiven, but we're humbled to the point to know that they they just won't go away. And in all of these things, in all of the other tragedies, the things we didn't sign up for that we experience in this life, In our afflictions, God is drawing us closer to himself. 
He's helping his children to remember that they, we have to always look to God for our sustenance and our strength and not relying on our own resources. Our logic is that if we're suffering, we've got to get it together so we can offer something to God. He's actually using all of our afflictions to help us that he is everything we need. He is our sustenance. He is our strength. Do not rely on your own resources. Paul's thinking these things, even as he knows that he's going to Rome in chains. How God is not only with him in the affliction, but he uses it all for his glory. As guard after guard comes in and he speaks Christ to them, you can see God's marvelous sovereign hand even in imprisonment. So I'm making the connection to different types of suffering in our life and how God might be working in them, whether it's facing the consequences of our sin or whether it's other types of sufferings in this life and how God is chastising us for our profit, how he is humbling us to see that, man, we need him. We are sinners. And it's not going away till the resurrection. And he's drawing us closer to himself. And however, as we seek to close this, this point on how God works through weakness, how he likes to show his strength through weakness. As we look at all that, we consider these afflictions and these trials and these sufferings as the thing they are, evil. They're a result of sin. Every amount of suffering we have is a result of sin and God hates it. It's like a sickness that deprives us of health. These things are like the death of our friends and family, which take away our comfort and our joy that we find in them. This is what suffering is. It's evil. But we consider them as God's works proceeding from his holy will all at the same time. It's like this double-faced picture. We look at it one way and it's this ugly arrangement of, of, of shadows and colors. Then we change our, change our posture and look at it and it's this beautiful person. It's what suffering is like in our life, this double-faced picture. Luther says it incredibly well. Look up to God and we have wherein to rejoice. Look into ourselves and we have cause to mourn. Therefore, let joy be in the morning and mourning be in the joy. The point is, everything that happens in this life, everything that happens in the life of God's people, whether good or whether ill, happens by his appointment. It rebounds for his glory and it will be for the benefit of his people. Everything that happens in the life of God's people, it, whether good or whether ill, it happens by his appointment. It will rebound for his glory and it will be for the benefit of his people. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And before moving on, let me summarize this to try to help us hang on to the larger picture. And I want to do that by asking you, so have you experienced this transformative power of the gospel where you experience suffering in light of the God who shows his strength in your weakness? It's the kind of power that not only saves, but it allows us to have joy through resting in Christ, knowing that God is consistently in control and he is working through any and every circumstance 
Now, our job is not to find out why and what he's doing. He's doing a thousand things in every circumstance of our life, and we might know of two of them. Out of all the things he's doing in every part of our life, we might know of two of them. It's a good perspective. The, the purpose is not to, to just hyper-analyze and try to figure out why and what he's doing this for. It's the rest that we have in Christ, knowing this is what he does. He works through weakness. Knowing that we're secure in the Lord Jesus. Knowing that it all works out for his glory and for our good as we have security in the Lord Jesus. And so there are two reasons, just to summarize, why the power of the gospel enables us to find joy in knowing that God is in control. We just considered reason one, how God's strength is demonstrated in our weakness. But let's consider reason two, that the power of Christ goes beyond our circumstances. The power of Christ goes beyond our circumstances. In verses 15 through 18, we see Paul kind of bring up two people that are preaching. Some of them are preaching out of envy and rivalry. In verse 16, it says that it's not out of love. Actually, verse 17, it's out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. So they're not only just preaching to maybe give themselves a name, to maybe give some power, give themselves some leverage, capitalize on the imprisonment of Paul and make, make themselves uh, a reputation out here. They actually, at the end of verse 17, they want to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. They want to rub his chains in his face. And then the other group, of course, they're preaching out of love and they're truthful about their motive. Now, you have two options here. Are these people believers that are preaching Christ, or are they unbelievers that are preaching Christ? You can make the decision. Either way, the point of the text doesn't change. No matter if you say, well, these people are believers that are preaching Christ or unbelievers that are preaching Christ. It could be uh, Hebrews 6. They're tasting and seeing of the heavenly gift, and they're preaching Christ. They're making a name for themselves, and they apostatize. right? Or they are just... They're preachers who love the Lord Jesus and are consumed with their sin in this current phase of life. Um, or they are unbelievers just peddling Christ to get money, to get an image, to get a name. Um, but in verse 18, this is what it, it's hard for us to sort of understand this because Paul actually says, so what am I going to do? These guys are rubbing my chains in their face and they're preaching from selfish ambition and pretense. He says, Christ is proclaimed, and so I'm going to rejoice. Christ, their motives against me are horrible, but Christ is proclaimed, and so I'm going to rejoice. Paul's issue is not with the content of their message. It's an interesting part of this little section that's like a conundrum to even me. Now, I happen to believe, I happen to take the stance that they're probably believers in that it's not about what they are preaching, but why they are preaching it. That's certainly the, the, the take here. But nonetheless, Christ is proclaimed. Now, Paul is not condoning the motives of their heart. He's not saying, well, it doesn't matter where your heart's at when you preach Christ. In this point, he's talking about the advancement of the gospel, which happens through proclaiming Christ. And I know that they're not pro proclaiming Christ from right motives, but Christ is being proclaimed. That's his motive. That is what he's saying. That is what he's celebrating. He's not, he's not excusing unfaithful motives. But it's just real strange 
that these people would try to rub Paul's chains in his face by preaching Christ. It's just very, very strange. It's like, I, you know, again, probably not how we're going to do it, but they probably uh, have a way to make money, to, again, the image, the reputation, but they're using the hearers as servants of their own sake. They are not being servants for Jesus' sake. It's very clear there. And here is the good news, and here's why Paul is able to say, Christ is proclaimed, and so I'm going to rejoice. Because the power of Christ transcends our circumstances. And here's how it does that. The power of the gospel is not in the one who proclaims it, and the power of the gospel is not in the one who receives it. So look with me at, or think with me about how the power of the gospel is not in the one that proclaims it. Help us all, God, help us all if the power of the message of Christ was situated in my heart, in my purity, in my devotion, in in faithful motives. If this were true, there would only be one person who could preach the gospel, Jesus Christ. But in fact, he is the gospel. Because he is the gospel, practically speaking, You don't have to worry about your salvation or the truthfulness of Christ if a preacher were to leave the faith and apostatize. Because the power is not in the preacher. The power is not in the person who brings the message. The life-transforming power of the Word of God is Jesus Christ. It's not in frail human beings who speak it. It's in the triune creator who breathed this out. The son who accomplished the gospel in time and space. And the Holy Spirit who illuminated your heart and caused you to believe in Jesus. Where is the power? Where is the power? I'm unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The power of the gospel is in the person and the work of your Savior, the Lord Jesus. And guess what? It never loses its power. It will never, ever, ever lose its power for us saints. In all of your sufferings, in all of your struggles, in all of your sins, in all of your doubts, in all of your failures, In everything that happens in this life, we have hope. As God works through our weakness and the power of Christ transcends all of our circumstances. Praise be to God. Y'all with me? And the power of the gospel is not in the people who receive it. It is not in how well you received it. And it's not in how well you're trying to keep yourself in it. It's, listen to these verses from Colossians 2. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, Abounding in thanksgiving, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. And in him, you were circumcised 
with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were always you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He has set them aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. In him. The power of the gospel is not in the one who proclaims it, and it's not in the one who receives it. It is in him, saints. This message cannot be chained by whatever circumstance we're going through, by the preacher who's proclaiming it, or by the one that's receiving it. This is why, listen, this is why we need him preached week after week. Many of us, fall into the trap of wanting the insight from the scripture. We want the application. We want the thing to do. We want some answers to difficult theological uh, things in the scriptures and conundrums. And we can fall into this. We easily fall into this. I know the gospel. I know the ABCs of the faith. I know what he is and what he did. But coming off of last week, how do we find out that God's heart for us is in he wanted to be our friend. When we were his enemies, he came to us, which is what grace means. And he befriended us and told us that this thing is never going to end. How do we find that he has saved us and that he's never letting us go in this life? How do we see the affections for God in us in the Messiah here on planet earth? It is in Christ being proclaimed. In Christ being proclaimed. We know that all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for these things, for teaching, for reproof, for, for, for correction, for training in righteousness toward godliness in this life, which we heard it lives past this life. So it's a worthy pursuit, godliness and holiness, and that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Without Christ, none of that is true. You've got to wrestle with that. There is nothing good for us that the scripture is profitable for those things if you don't understand that it's because of Jesus. The word who became flesh. The power that has transformed your life to have a heart that loves God and loves each other. And so now we get profit and we get teaching and we get reproved in correction. And now we're training in righteousness because the power of Christ for us which is why week after week, we need it. I don't need to be told about him. I need him. When you show up here, I'm not telling you, we're not telling you, the pastors are not telling you about him. They're telling you him for you today and every day and all of his benefits and all of his merit. A little worked up, but probably because I need to keep remembering that because I, like you, fall into that trap. I know this. I know about this. 
This is the Savior that looks us in our eyes and tells us that he loves us, that he's enough, that he's our righteousness, that he's our forgiveness, and he's working in every circumstance in our life. So when we hear the gospel, it's not just remember how you were saved. Remember how you're being kept. Remember how you're going to make it to the end. Remember in your suffering, this is the one that's with you week after week after week. That's what we hear when Christ is proclaimed. And so bringing this to an abrupt drop in our helicopter. How do we rest in this joy of Christ? Well, we often pray to experience God. I'm just thinking about you, saints, and I, and I just pray, even now as I preach, I'm thinking about you, and I pray that you know Christ for you. I just pray that week after week we hold each other to this. We're going to get Jesus when we show up here, and we need him. But how do we rest in this joy of Christ? When we often pray to experience God, we want to know Jesus. We want to glorify God. We want to enjoy him. But all these things in our mind are these external things that need to be attained. And you hearing Christ for you week after week after week, what you're knowing is that you don't need to create some sense of, of, of being close to Jesus or trying to connect with God all on your own. The truth is that Christ is within us. And we're trying to live in the reality that Christ is with us. That's what is happening when Christ is preached from this pulpit. We are trying to practice yet again Christ with us. As Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the gospel allows us, saints, to embrace the joy that comes from knowing that God is consistently in control and he's working through every circumstance in our lives. And we saw this today from the text and how God's strength is demonstrated in weakness and how the power of Christ transcends all of our circumstances. That in mind, let's go to the Lord and pray.